I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul, nor disturb my routines, just enough to equal a warm cup of milk and a snooze in the sunshine. Not enough to make me love an enemy or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want a taste of heaven, not some yoke of obedience. The warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. When Wilbur Reese wrote that more than 40 years ago, he was worried about a creeping sickness coming into the church that he considered shallow Christianity. Bonhoeffer worried about the same thing 90 years ago when he wrote of cheap grace. Does that name ring a bell? Hannah Moore, a contemporary of John Wesley, uh, said the same thing more than 200 years ago when she wrote about a sporadic spirituality that easily confesses sin but never um, has the power to resist it. Yes? And the trouble with this kind of religion that Wilbur Reese wrote about is, is not in what he's asking for, it's what he can't ask for because he doesn't even see it. If he reads it, he doesn't get it. If he hears it in a sermon, he'll nod, but he doesn't understand it. So it's not what he's asking for, it's what he can't ask for, it's what he's leaving on the table. It reminds me of the story Brennan Manning told of a boy that dies in abject poverty, appears before God in heaven. And God asks the boy, wanting to make up for years of poverty, ask for anything and I will give it to you. Boy says, anything? I want, I want a warm roll.
with butter. And all of heaven wept. More humorously, it reminds me of our friend Dave Dury when his dad walked him into Kmart, the predecessor to Walmart. If you've been born too late. He said to his son, anything you want in the store, buy, I'll pay for it. It's yours. <laughs> and he looked. Finally, he came back with a plastic cassette holder. <laughs> Are you sure, Stan said? Yep, this is it. This is all? Yep, it's all. He found out later that his dad, this is back in the 80s. Dave was born in 1930. He, this is back in the late 80s. He found out later that his dad had $1,000 cash in his pocket in a checkbook in the back, and he was going to bankroll the entire thing. And you walk out with a plastic cassette holder. Man, why don't you just buy an 8-track? The trouble is not what they ask for, it's what they can't ask for because they can't even see it. I haven't even imagined a life that is better than the little life that I have. And that, I suppose, is why so many Christians who got saved never got converted. Because for them, the road to conversion is always giving up something rather than receiving something bigger. Yes? It sounds like Peter who says to Jesus, we have given up everything to follow you. Jesus says, given up? Traded in. You traded it in. For an upgrade. And you're so focused on what you had to give up, you cannot even see what you've gotten in return. And that is why I think Christians who got saved don't get converted because we can't even imagine a life better than the little one we have. Well, the, the, the cure for that, I think, is found in the book of Exodus. Can I remind you quickly? I mean very quickly what we said last week because we have to move on. Is that all right? Um, last week we discovered that the Pharaoh is not only a man, he's a metaphor. He's a machine, a system. As a man, he is a person with enormous power and wealth and influence. And he has pulled the wealth and power from the public toward himself. So he becomes even more powerful and more wealthy. And therein lies the system. The system is a set of beliefs, assumptions, values, ways, rituals, superstitions. They all come together in a complex web 
that empowers the man. Systems create pharaohs and pharaohs reinforce systems. Are you there? You're quiet. Are you thinking or bored? That was the first thing. Once we understand that, it changes the way you read Exodus. Exodus is no longer about a guy Christians love to hate, Pharaoh. And then once he's dead, God's people are free. No, not the thing at all. Even after Pharaoh is dead, Pharaoh's systems continue to live on after him, which is why on the other side of the Red Sea, let me say that in slow motion, on the other side of the Red Sea, the children of Israel are complaining about their conditions and saying, oh man, why don't we just go back into systems? You hear it? Why don't we just go back to Egypt? We were eating all we wanted back there. They're beholden to the system. It's got hold of them so that even though they're free, they still think like slaves. And this is why Israel, the people of God, built a golden calf years after they've been released because they're still captive to the Egyptian way of life. So the exodus is not simply God delivering his people out of slavery. That's only chapters 13 and 14. The book itself is 40 chapters. So the exodus itself, the getting out, is only 5% of the entire book. It's much larger than this. It's about... God destroying one culture and inventing another one. It's about God taking down a powerful man and then lifting him up as king of all creation. That's what Exodus is really about. It's not just about getting people out. You there? All right. So if I'm reading it right, it started, the fight started with a call for a festival. After God called Moses, um, Moses went in to see the Pharaoh. He went into the heart of the system. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says to the Pharaoh, this is what the God, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may celebrate me in a festival in the desert. Festivals were peculiarly religious events. They were like the 4th of July in America. They were large gatherings around some historic moment. And in the celebration of that historic moment, 
they reinforced a narrative. Like in the 4th of July, God bless America, festivals in the Old Testament reinforced a narrative. When they reinforced that narrative, they invited the next generation of people into the rituals or into the worship or belief system of the people. Does that make sense? There's a reason why around the 4th of July, enlistments for the military go up. Youth come in, they see the pageant on display, they say, that's who we are, I give myself to that. It's as much recruitment as it is celebration. Festivals in the Old Testament were often periods of leisure, pause, where people push away from work, like the 4th of July. And they were places where everybody brought food. So there was tons to eat. This was common. It was like a church potluck. Only everyone knew how to cook. I'm just saying. Even if you didn't know how to cook, you brought your mm, dish to the potluck. And when you put it together with all the other dishes, everybody had enough. When my first church, I was not married for the first little while, we'd have a potluck. Uh, I can barely make ice. And so on the way to the church, I would stop and I would get these day-old rolls because I was poorer than church mice. And I would bring these rolls to the potluck and those gracious older ladies would just say, oh, this is so beautiful. I was laughing about it. And they would put it together with all of their casseroles and everybody ate. So it didn't matter whether you had a lot of food or you had only a little bit of food, whether you could cook or not cook, you were part of something bigger than you. And it's like the whole economy was just flattened. Everybody had plenty and nobody was out. That was a festival. In festivals, there were rituals, formal ceremonies, where priests or magistrates or whoever was in charge of the village would stand and sometimes read language that helped the public put words to their beliefs. He reinforced them. Often in festivals, there was a moment of sacrifice, either money or blood. It was given over. It was placed on an altar, and every religion had one. Because altars were thin places between heaven and earth, where humanity and divinity met. And you would place your offering to the gods on an altar. 
festivals, festivals. Let my people go into the desert so they will hold a festival to me, said Yahweh. Pharaoh knows full well what this means. When he hears the word Yahweh, the God of Israel, Pharaoh already believes he is the God of Israel. And so he says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I do not know this Yahweh, and I will not let these people go. And then he doubles down. He says to Moses, now you people are lazy, and that's why you keep wanting a festival. You get out of here and get back to work and get my people back to work in the brickyards. And then the Pharaoh doubles down. He says to the slave divers, I want you to withdraw the straw that they are using to make the bricks. He says, let them gather their own straw, only don't reduce the quota. Then they will be so focused on their work, they will not have time to think about one of these festivals. And that's exactly what they do. They withdraw the straw. They keep the quota the same. And the slave drivers start oppressing the slaves. And the slaves come to Moses and say, you did this to us. We were fine in the system. It was working for us until you go talk about something more. Moses runs to God and says, why have you brought all this trouble on these people? Is this why you called me? Is this what you want? Ever since I went to Pharaoh, like you said, he has done nothing but bring grief, suffering on your people. And you have not rescued us at all. Yahweh sees that he's about to lose Moses. The leader is done. So Yahweh says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. With my mighty hand, I will free my people. I will redeem my people. I will adopt my people. I will take them as my own until they know the Lord their God. And I will lead my people into the land I promised them, and I will place them there on my oath and my covenant. Then Yahweh unleashes terror on the Egyptians in a series of plagues. Are you familiar with these? There's nine plus one, and they appear to come in threes. The first three 
annoy people. The second three start to shake the foundations of the Pharaoh's system. And by the end of the third three, number seven, eight, and nine, the entire economy is in collapse. The power has been absolutely crushed. And the reputation of Egypt as the breadbasket of the region has been completely obliterated. In nine plagues, God unleashes terror on the Egyptians. Moses meets the Pharaoh on his way to the Nile, raises his staff, and the Nile is turned to blood in the first plague. In the second, when the blood finally recedes back into the river banks, the nation is overwhelmed with billions of frogs. They're everywhere. They're inside of people's houses, in their beds, in their ovens, in the palace. In the third, God unleashes gnats that come in swarms so thick that the livestock can't even breathe. In a series of plagues, by the third plague alone, Pharaoh's priests are already saying to him, this is unusual, this is the finger of God. And by the seventh plague, they're already saying, let these people go. If he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And now even Pharaoh's priests are hiding their cattle from the hail so they don't get hammered like everybody else's. And by the eighth plague, the priests come to their own ruler, Pharaoh, and say, look, the game is up. Egypt is destroyed. When are you going to let these people go? Pharaoh doubles down until God sends the ninth plague, darkness over the sun, which was one of Egypt's gods. One by one, Yahweh has attacked not just the natural forces. He has assaulted the very religious underpinnings of the empire. Yahweh has unleashed heaven on the gods. Pharaoh beside himself summons Moses to come into his presence. And no sooner does Moses appear when Pharaoh starts like this. Get out of my sight. Excuse me, this was your meeting. He says, get out of my sight. Never appear before me again. Next time you appear before me will be your last day on earth. You will die. Moses says, as you wish, sir. I will never appear before you again. And he does not. But two weeks later, 600,000 Israelites are lined up in columns. <laughs> Walking through a sea. where God has made a road. 
Ain't that a story? I think this story is embedded in Jesus' mind on the day he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He sits in the seat of Moses where rabbis sat in the day. They hand him the scroll. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he reads the spirit of of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recover sight for the blind, release the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you're listening closely, you can hear Exodus in that reading. The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, and I must preach to the poor and proclaim freedom for the prisoners, opened eyes of the blind, and release people that have been oppressed for so long They don't even know what to ask for anymore. Then he rolls up the scroll, sets it aside, and sits down in the seat of Moses, and every eye is fastened on him. And Jesus says, this day, literally beginning today, that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let me tell you why that's important to me. Because it means that the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in the Old Testament. It means the gospel of Jesus comes straight out of the Old Testament narrative of release for the captives and freedom for the prisoners and a deliverance for people that are trapped in bondage. Do you hear it? Do you hear the language? Yes? The gospel of Jesus is rooted in an Old Testament narrative specifically beginning with Moses. And this is why I think so many of us who got saved can't get converted because we have grabbed a simple message, a plan of salvation, a prayer that is said, an act that is done, a confession that is made, but we have detached it from the Old Testament narrative where it is grounded. And because we've detached it from that narrative, we don't see anything that happens before or after that prayer. Are you, are you tracking? Or is this just me getting lathered up? How many people have come into Christianity on the basis of a simple transaction where a confession of sin is made, forgiveness is given, and from that day on, their life just flattens out. It never moves forward again. This is because we have not called them into a story like the Exodus. 
That narrative has three movements. Relax, I'm not, these are not the points. I'm not gonna unpack all this. You're like, oh my goodness. Three simple movements. The first one is bondage. The second one is deliverance. And the third one is reunion. In bondage, the people of God, not the world, the people of God are trapped. But the bondage in Exodus is not only the things that people are into, it's the things that have gotten into them. The entire belief system of Pharaoh has gotten into the people of God. They have been immersed in Egypt so long, they think like Egypt even when they're free. And so the deliverance must be as radical as the bondage is severe. If the bondage gets all the way into our being, our way of living, our defaults and superstitions, then the deliverance must completely rid us of all of that or we are not finally free. This is why people who pray to be converted keep referring back to things they did when they were in bondage. Because the prayer is not first and the prayer is not magic. Once the prayer has been made, the third act is learning a new way. It's learning a new way. Go back and read the Ten Commandments again. I won't ask you to recite them. I'll touch this in a couple of weeks. If you read the Ten Commandments again, they are in stark contrast to the ways of Egypt. They are not only a replica of God's character, they are a countercultural life that God is calling us into. And so my burden, my passion this morning is that there are so many who are still bondage and yet Jesus has set us free. It's like we've accepted Christ and then we've gone back to the brickyard and we live as slaves. And he wants to set us free. The purpose is not forgiveness. The purpose is a festival. We have been called to a celebration of life in God's presence. And into a God who dwells with us. Are you guys tired? I'll stop anyway. Well, one more thing. The way out, the way out of bondage begins with a confrontation of our gods. Whatever the spiritual laws really are, the first spiritual law ought to read something like this. You have to confront your gods. 
If you don't confront your gods, you'll carry them right with you into the new life. Your God is not who you say it is. It's who you actually worship. It is the thing, the person, the cause, the entity, the institution, the hope, the ideal that you use to explain how this world works. It is the thing or the person you turn to when you are in trouble because he will free us. It's the thing, the entity, the hope that you use to explain why everything has gone wrong. It is the thing that you sacrifice most of your time and most of your money to afford. Now we're getting personal. Every book I read on idols tries to tell us what our idols are. And I think that's in generally a bad idea. I've done it myself. I've told you that the gods of America in the last three or four years have been A, the government, B, the military, C, science or technology, D, freedom, E, education, you name it. These are things that the Americans have turned to again and again as something to be trusted in a time of crisis. We will gather and sing eloquently of loyalty to Yahweh and then refer right back to these systems as the way to bring happiness. Even though I just went there, I won't go there. It is better to just raise the question. Who do you trust when you're up against it? Who do you keep running back to? to what do you want? What do you want? What is your vision of the flourishing life? And who or what do you keep going to to bring it? What are the cardinal sins how do you decide who's in and who's out? Who's with it and who's lost? What system? The gods that we have today are many and they're short-lived. They live and then they die, or they adapt, they evolve. They come in pairs, or they come in threes, and they feed off of each other, just like Pharaoh. The way back begins with the death of your gods. Only you can't kill them. They got to die. You can confront them. You can call them out. But you got to go there with Yahweh. And he's got to kill them. But church, here's the beautiful thing. 
that ain't a loss. That's an upgrade. Feels to you like you're losing something valuable. How could we ever be happy without it? But when you actually let it die and take what Yahweh is giving you, life itself, you will find something so much bigger. You will find not just a better brickyard, you will find a festival. 